0: You know, the Word of God that Rachel just read is, um, its it's meant to do more than simply instruct us. It's, the Word of God is to be like sculptor's hands forming and fashioning us into the people of God. You know, we're starting this new series on discipleship, trying to... What we want to do is create a culture of discipleship. When I speak about a culture of discipleship, I'm not speaking simply about the institutional means of how we're discipled. There are institutional means on Sunday morning. You have them on Wednesday night. You have them on uh, Sunday school and care groups. These are ways that instruction can be had and uh, discipleship can happen. Uh, but I'm speaking about a, a culture of discipleship where there's almost it's in the DNA of the church. That, that it's something you're thinking about. It's more organic. You, you have a desire that other people will grow in their love for God. It's not something that they can be taught. It's a burden that you have for others to know more of God. And, and you see yourself as instrumental in that process. That it doesn't happen in a vacuum, but it actually happens through your engagement. That's what we're seeking to create. It is a culture of discipleship. And we start out with Mark 1, because Jesus makes clear in, in verses 14 and 15, this is the message that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. It's a unique message, it's a clear message. It, it can be an ominous message, actually. And then from this message, there is a mission that flows out of it, that, that Jesus came not just to declare something, but he came actually to call people to something. And so over the next five weeks, we'll be looking at these different call narratives and these different passages, which kind of instruct us on what does it mean to actually follow Jesus. So, so two things I want to do. I want to look at the message and, and get you to understand the uniqueness of the message, as well as the urgency of the message. And what's the mission? We're going to look at what does it mean to follow? What's it mean to be called? So the mission, sorry, the message. The message is is interesting how Jesus, in verse 14, when Rachel read, it's the first thing said by Jesus in the gospel. First thing he said was, the time is fulfilled. Now, of course, that begs the question, what time is fulfilled? Well, it helps to know what precedes those verses, of course, in the first 13 verses we find that mark has this intention mark's writing to a group of christians probably in rome and he's saying to them listen This jesus is unique Look john the baptist was a forerunner. He was the one that was sent before this was all told about back in isaiah Back in isaiah. He said there's gonna be a man. He's gonna come. He's gonna be the forerunner He's gonna say that we're gonna make the way straight because the lord is coming and so God is preparing the people to receive a Messiah. John was that man. But then what happens is John, once John begins preaching, Jesus arrives on the scene, and we see him next baptized. And God confirms that Jesus is the one from him that's going to come and bring about this salvation because God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Who needs a better reference than that? I mean, God speaks from heaven. This is my son, confirming that Jesus is the one. But then what happens next is the temptation in verses 8 to 13. And God is revealing that the son, Jesus, is worthy of being this kingdom bringer. Why? Because he went through a temptation. Now, all of you who read the Bible, or even if you don't very much, you're thinking about there's another temptation in Scripture, and it's in chapter 3 of Genesis. And that temptation, the first Adam, was supposed to live by the word of God, for the glory of God. And he didn't. He and Eve, of course, went their own way. They wanted to establish their own kingdom. And, of course, that brought ruination, of which we now experience, empirical data everywhere, that we were separated and alienated from God. But then Jesus comes as the second Adam. And what happens in his temptation? He says, he lives by the word of God. He follows the will of God. He honors God. He doesn't succumb to the temptation. So Mark is establishing Jesus. He's been promised of God. He's been confirmed of God. And now he's been tested. He's worthy of God. And then Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The time. In other words, you're waiting for a Messiah to come deliver. It's over. Uh, All the years of, of walking through darkness, they're over. Can you imagine the news if you were waiting like that? I mean, it, it's like it's like Oklahoma in the 30s, year after year of no rain. It becomes a dust bowl, and if you ever if you've studied any American history, you know it was a terrible time of devastation. But then the rains came. Can you imagine that dry, parched, busted up soil, all of a sudden getting the rains? Finally, it's here. Or think about C.S. Lewis about that time when the One of the characters says, Aslan is on the move. He's on the move. Things are beginning to happen. God is moving in a decisive way now, bringing about a reclamation of all of his creation. That's what he means. The time is fulfilled. The waiting is over. So what's Jesus begin to preach? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. Now, listen, when I speak about the kingdom of God, I'm not talking about flags or geographical markers. I'm talking about a reign. I'm talking about a rulership. It's not where you are, it's more important whose you are. And Jesus is making this reign visible. So when Jesus, who is the one sent from God, begins dwelling among men, there's a signal marker that God is beginning a work that is going to crush sin and death and shame. Going to crush it all. I mean, this should be good news. That's what Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Now, this word good news, by the way, is not just a religious term, you know, good news. It's, it's not just a religious term, it was used by the Romans. In fact, there's a coin that's been found, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's good news in their minds that he was taking reign. So it was used both in secular, and here Jesus takes the expression, the gospel, and says, Repent and believe the gospel. This is good news because God has sent one to save us, to deliver us, to change us, to to save us from our fears and our shame and our guilt and bring us to a position before him as a son or daughter. That's good news. And this is why, Jesus, you sense this urgency. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, when I say believe in the gospel, words matter to us. We use words. They matter. What does it mean to believe? When I say that this message Jesus came to deliver needs to be believed in, I'm not talking about a religiosity that we may have. I'm not talking about religious enthusiasm. I'm not, I'm not talking about I, I'm a spiritual person. To say that I believe, it's not even saying that I intellectually agree. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, we used to eat uh, pork and sauerkraut at uh, New Year's Day. My mom's Italian. I have no idea where we got that. But pork and sauerkraut, because the year would be good if we ate pork. I, I believed her. you know she Mom said it. I believed it. I, I intellectually agreed with her that that was true. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about believing in the gospel, I'm talking about that you are trusting the entirety of your life to this person, Jesus who has come to establish a kingdom by which he will live and die and be raised to bring us to God. I'm talking about a resting in his finished work for us, that I'm no longer striving to somehow appeal to God to find me favorable, but I'm resting in his work that in him God will find me favorable. That's what I'm talking about, believe. And with that belief, there ought to be, there ought to be a measure of joy Her beauty attached to it. I mean, mean, if you were were just alone on an island, running out of food, and you see lights of a boat coming to you, I mean, are you going to be morose? Sad? I mean, you're going to be... There's hope. There's hope coming. There's this joy. I love what John Piper wrote about this. He says that belief or being persuaded that something is true is, is not the same as apprehending the beauty and the worth of the truth. So it's not just, yeah, I believe you died for my sins. I mean, mean, there ought to be this attendant joy that I'm being delivered. I'm being saved. I'm being rescued. Who doesn't shout and wave and scream to be delivered? But, but what's interesting is th- th- there's a, when Jesus says repent and believe, repentance is that marker as well that evidences the reality of your faith, of your belief. In other words, if you believe that he's the Savior to bring us from darkness to light, then you're going to repent. Now, when I mean repent, I don't mean that I feel bad that someone was hurt. That may be part of it. Uh, but repentance is something more colossal repentance is like an about-face. It's like a quick turn away from where you were going. So in other words, for my own personal life, if I were to have given you a report card before my coming to Christ, I would have said I was a decent person. I mean, I, I was fairly fairly moral. I mean, fairly, that's a, one of those terms that can stretch. Uh, you, you know, I, I was, I was somewhat civically minded. You know, I was somewhat respectful, maybe that may be giving myself a bit of a curve, grading on the curve on that one. But but I mean, I would never have said God shouldn't find me an enemy. I would have never said that. But then, but then when you come to understand the gospel, you realize that the lust that I had in my heart that I could justify, well, she wore that, you know, or, or the anger that I had. Well, he said that, or the envy, you know, well, they did that. You know, I, I could always justify my sins based upon the behavior of others. But when I became a Christian, I realized, no, that envy, the lust, the bitterness, that is anathema to God. That is, as John read in Isaiah 6, he doesn't even look on sin. And when I repented, I realized, God saved me. I, I, I thought I came in clean. I just realized I'm filthy before you. And I repent, I turn from those sins. doesn't mean I don't sin anymore. I don't want to sin anymore. That's the difference. And when I do, I quickly repent. So so repentance is different than just feeling bad. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. It's to run from your sins. So that's the message he came to bring. He came to bring, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So it's not just I believe in Jesus. We're good. No, there is repentance. Thomas Boston, a a Puritan of the 17th century, said repentance and faith. It's like two wings of a dove by which she flies to heaven. Two wings of a dove, repentance and faith. Now, if you're not a Christian... I think you'll find this unique. It is a unique message. I think most would agree. Why do I say that? Well, because all religions of the world give you advice. They give you direction. They give you rules, like the five pillars of Islam you have to do. All religions will give you advice regarding how you can connect to God, how you can get right with God, how you can make sure that you're okay with God. They all give advice. Christianity gives no advice. This is a declaration. This isn't any sort of advice he's telling you. He's just telling you this is what God's doing. You may not have been conferred. You may not even like it. It doesn't matter. He's doing it. The time's fulfilled. God said the time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. There was no straw poll taken. There was nobody asked. God did it. It's an announcement that Jesus Christ has come into this world to save. That's the announcement. That's the gospel. Now, at a minimum, if you believe this, if this is true, it ought to leave us a little bit shaking. I I mean, it's pretty bold. I remember when I was a kid, eight years old, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. July 20, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, they got it, walked on the moon. The big line was, great or giant step for mankind. But think about Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, dwelling among people. That's huge. That God would be so gracious to the incarnation, for him to come and dwell among us to establish a kingdom and save us. This is a unique message. It's absolutely, it's radically unique. And I would ask you, if, if you're not at least warmed by the uniqueness of it, repent that the familiarity... Has just brought you to a place of, yeah, yeah, you came in flesh and, and lived among us and established a kingdom and went ahead and died and rose again and now seated at the right hand of the Father for us. You know, repent of our lackadaisical or, or thank them or, or just, just, I mean, for me, my reaction to this truth where it's not joy, I want joy. I want to ask God to give me a joy in that. And I want to take it seriously because it's not just a unique message, it's an urgent one. I mean, you sense that. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's a summons. So, so it's a summons. So you either bow the knee and you repent before him. That's what it means to become a Christian, by the way. To bow the knee means to humble yourself before God, to confess your sins, to repent and believe in Christ. Or you've got to turn and run. You really do. You've got to turn and run. You've got to put your hope and, and your, everything that's going for you've got to put it in the world. Because this king has established a beachhead, and his kingdom is going out. And, and so th- there is kind of a warning there. There's kind of a almost, not a threat, but a dire warning, I would say. So that's the message. That's all contained in 14 and 15. The kingdom of God is hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We become Christians through repentance and faith. Okay, now notice what happens next, though. Jesus Jesus did not just come to declare something to us. He came to start something. He had a mission, and he began to call men and women to be disciples, right? You see that in verse 16. It's called a call narrative. It's a narrative, it's a story, but it's about the calling of men and women to himself. And so you see this. There's four things about the call that I want you to see. Four things about what it means to be a disciple. There's four things about how he calls us. Jesus calls us to himself, number one. And then number two, Jesus calls us to follow him. And then Jesus calls us, and I'll repeat these, uh, to help others follow him. And then Jesus calls us to persist and persevere. So four things. Let me start with the first one. Jesus calls us to himself. Notice he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, that sea was maybe 12 miles long, 6 miles wide, at its widest point. It was teeming with life. It was the major meat source of all the people around there. There was probably 16 harbors at the time of Jesus Christ. Could have been hundreds of fishing boats out there. So, I mean, it was a big business. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew, and he says, come follow me. And of course, they're throwing their net, so it's a circular net, generally speaking, you throw it out, it's got weights on the bottom, it goes, it sinks to the floor, and then you take your rope and you begin to pull it, which tightens the bottom, closes the circle, and you keep, of course, whatever you catch and so uh they're doing that work, and he calls them, they follow him, and then he walks by John and James, and they're mending the nets of their father. It's a business, so this is a this is a fishing business now, not just a a mom pa shop over with Simon and Andrew, but a fishing business. The men in the nets come follow me, they follow him. Now, now that seems innocuous enough, but it's a big deal, right? She's walking by, and, but, but it's different because at this time, the, it was the student who sought the teacher that he wanted to follow. It was the pupil that sought the rabbi he wanted. But Jesus is calling them. The teacher is calling the student. This was unheard of. But, but but he's calling them by his own sovereign initiative. He's moving towards them and calling them personally. And, and notice who he's calling. He didn't go to the halls of government. He didn't go to academia. He didn't go to the financial sector. He just went to a bunch of fishermen. I, I mean, a bunch of untrained, unskilled, unsophisticated fishermen. I mean, I, I, I want to just have you get that because so many times i'll hear i'm not really good at anything i haven't been trained i haven't i haven't had any seminary classes i'm not a good speaker and you write yourself right out of god's narrative you write yourself right out of god's story because you haven't met some criteria that you've fashioned for yourself you know aw toser was a pastor in chicago in the first part of the 20th century, and he says, aren't you glad that God didn't just choose the sparklers? You know, the sparklers, those things we light on July 4th, and they're very bright and very attractive, but they really don't last very long at all. And and by sparklers, he means those people that may have it all well pointed up, and they got everything going, they're right positioned, they're brilliant, they can say everything, they look beautiful every time they walk out the door, but it only lasts a short time. They're just sparklers. He he doesn't choose those. The first thing we see about this discipleship is is Jesus calls all of us to be disciples. There's There's no gradation of disciples. There aren't the disciple in Scripture is the trained one, or he's been in the faith, or she's been in the faith a long time. There's one level. All disciples, all are called to him. But this is what the rest of the Scripture says, doesn't it? In James 2, It's funny how God is so counterintuitive to the way we think. He says that God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich. Or he says in in, um, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he says, how many of you were wise when you were called? How many of you were noble? He says, God chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. So in other words, you're his disciples if you have believed and repented. You're not a lesser disciple than me or somebody else that you may or may not. You're a disciple. There's only one class disciples. That's what we are. We're followers of Jesus. I mean, does this humble you? Does it make you grateful? It makes me grateful. It really makes me grateful. You know, I always used to hate those, when I was a kid, those measuring sticks that you had to be this tall to do this ride. And I was never seen to be tall enough. I'd wear platform shoes, which were big in the 70s. uh, But I was never tall enough. But discipleship doesn't work that way. It's faith and repentance makes you a disciple. And he calls you to himself. Did you notice he says, follow me. You know, the Christian faith is not about rules and dictates. It's about a passion for a person, Jesus. It's a love. It's to treasure him. It, you know the man that was walking across the field, in that parable that Jesus gave, Matthew 13, he finds treasure in the field. And in his joy, he sells everything to get the field. I want the field so bad. It, it's, it's so precious to him. That's what Jesus is to be to us. Th- there's a relationship. Discipleship isn't a duty. It's, it's devoted and treasuring a person. It's a unique devotion to Christ. It, it's a deep love for Christ. You know, it, it's a relationship. That's the way it's supposed to be. So if Carol and I, if when I took Carol on our honeymoon, and I expressed my deep passion and devotion to her, and I love you, I will always love you, honey. She's you're looking at me. It's unbelievable. She's taking notes. You don't need to take that note, babe. I'll tell you again. But if I said that to her, and I expressed my devotion to her completely, Right? And then she says to me, you know, look across there, I love you. I really love you. I think so much of you. And she pauses. And I'm thinking, what's she pausing for? And she goes, well, just for the sake of honesty, I, I really love Steve too though. He's a really neat guy and I've known him all my life and he's, he's been there for me at a lot of times. And, and Bill, what can you say about Bill? You even like Bill. I love Bill. And I, I would think, What what kind of relationship do we have? And and what Jesus is saying is, follow me. He he dissolves other loves. In other words, that's why Paul says, I consider everything rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. I mean, mean, there is this, this first love that we're to have for Jesus Christ. It's ultimately what discipleship flows out of, this deep and passionate love. Now this is what Augustine, and you've heard me say this before, the church father of the fourth century. You know, he speaks about humans struggling with disordered loves. If I loved my child more than I love my wife, that's disordered. If I love the dog more than the child, that's disordered. If I love the way the grass looks more than the dog, that's disordered. There is a certain order, and Jesus is first-ordered love. And, and that's why in the church and Revelation, he warns them, You've lost your first love. You've walked away from your first love. So, so folks, let me remind you discipleship is about a relationship coming to G- that Jesus calls us to himself, that we're to love him, be devoted to him. This might be a point of repentance for you or asking God, God, give me that love for your son again. That son in whom you're well pleased, let me be well pleased. You repent. Ask God for the strength to love him. So that's the first thing about Jesus calls us to himself. But Jesus also calls us to follow him. Now, you see that in the text clearly. That's kind of what gets most of our attention. Drop the nets and they go. Now, let me just remind you to drop the nets is no small deal. I mean, for for Simon and Andrew, that was their livelihood. That's what they We know Peter is married. That's what supported his family. And to drop the nets would mean to walk away from everything you know and everything that's providing security for you. And the same thing with John and James. They, even, they not only just left the nets, they left their business and they left their father. And that would have been a big deal. In that culture, to leave your father would have been a big deal. And they left him and followed him. Now, some of you may be saying, ah, I can't believe this. I can't believe he's walking down the beach. Hey, come follow me. And they follow And Hey, come follow me. They follow. Many of us have trouble understanding this. Well, this is why we read the whole Bible, right? In John chapter 1, we read that these two men were disciples of John the Baptist, Simon and Andrew. They were disciples. They would have heard about this Messiah. In fact, In fact, same with James and John. They may have even heard Jesus preach. So I don't want to minimize their sacrifices. I just want you to see that, that they had heard the gospel, they considered the gospel, and then they followed. And they followed by leaving everything. They left it all and followed him. Because that's what discipleship is, isn't it? It's obedience. It's obedience to the words of Christ. It's not me getting to determine, this is what I want to obey. Uh, I got some room over here on this one. It, it, it is a full-fledged obedience to the words of God. As given to us in Christ. There's an absolute leaving of the old life, moving to the next. In fact, Mark says, in fact, uh, Peter says later in Mark chapter 10, he says, We've left
1: everything
0: and followed you. Can you imagine that? A couple of years, we've left everything and followed you. I think about the Purdues. You know, we have William and Catherine that will be speaking after I preach and giving kind of a, a testimony and an. Um, they're going to express and share a little bit today, more later on, about their experiences. Uh, but, but the Purdue's left everything, right? They left their family, they left their friends, they, they left their home country, they left their language, they left their culture, they left a lot. But I don't want you thinking for a minute that this is one of these geographical or international calls. It's more nuanced than that. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, for you here, for us here, we're, we may not be called to go overseas. How do we leave our nets? How do we leave and follow Jesus? Well, I mean, one way is you, you, you leave your old life. In other words, you begin to imagine you have a new identity. I mean, you're a new person. You're a Christian now. You have a new family. You're part of a church that is supposed to care, love, and serve you. You're part of a new kingdom. You're not just a citizen of a country, but you're a citizen of heaven. You have a new king, Jesus, so you're not the Lord over your life anymore, that, that you do his bidding, that you have a new joy, you've been forgiven, and you've been washed clean, so you have a, a glorious future. You have a new goal, it's not to be the most in this world recognized as such, but, but your goal is to both be a disciple and then make disciples and see his name be declared great among the nations. So you really have quite a new identity. This is like the ultimate makeover. I mean, it is a total makeover. I don't mean you leave your old relationships, but you're new in the old relationships. So you're bringing to those relationships who you are in Christ. That's the primary identity that you now have. So that's, that's one Nuance. Let me give you another one. Another one would be to leave those things that once gave you value and, and drove you, gave worth and significance to you. If you're a professional in the marketplace, it may be some rung of the ladder, promotion, recognition, respect of your peers. If you work in the home, it may be you know the way your children go is, is so important to you that you actually draw worth and significance. If your kids are doing great, you're doing great. If your kids are doing bad, you're doing bad. And, and your, your life rises and falls based upon your children. If, if you're a teen, you know, I know, I remember what it used to be, teens. I mean, the peer approval was massive. And if you're a senior, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, I want to be financially secure. I want to have my free time and that sort of thing. This may not speak for everybody. I think I'm probably just offended about everybody, but... Um, but, but, but this new identity and to leave the nets, so to speak, I don't want to press the metaphor too hard, but it, it means that I'm going to work now with a different identity. I'm not going to see professional approval or financial gain as success, but the leveraging of relationships. Am I being a mask of God at work? Am I working with integrity and diligence and fruitfulness? Am I looking to bring transcendent conversations to be with my peers? That's what I'm looking at. That would be success. Not that you go spiritual and don't do your work. Do your work for the glory of God. But look for opportunities to speak about that glory of God. And if you're in the home, your kids are targets of ministry. They're not points of devotion. You're going to raise them up for the things of God and send them out. That's what we're called to do. If you're a teenager, you're going to fight that urge to find favor from people. But look for favor from God by the way you live, not the way you look. And if you're a senior, you're going to say, God, you've given me this time. Let me use it for your glory. With the free time that I now have that I couldn't do what I wanted to do when I was working, let me do it now for your glory. That's how it can look, that we follow him, that our identity is now meted out in whatever sphere of life we are. Okay, the third thing that we see about this Jesus calling us to follow him is Jesus calls us to help others follow him. In other words, to be a disciple means you're looking at the spiritual development of others as important to you. I mean, you kind of see this in becoming fishers of men, that you're you're becoming a fisher of men. Now, that is a metaphor used in the Old Testament. It's a scary metaphor, by the way, because if you see it used in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, God is the fisherman in the metaphor, and he casts his net over the wicked, and he draws them in, and he throws them all out. But Jesus is adding a twist here. He's saying that now we're gathering them in, but now we're offering the salvation of the gospel. It's a, it's a beautiful twist that we now become part of God's gathering force, gathering them in to proclaim to them the truth about Jesus Christ. So Jesus calls us to help others follow him. That means evangelism. That, that there, this isn't, this isn't an option. We are all called in the different stages and places in life to speak to the excellencies of Christ to those with whom we are related, either by blood or by proximity. You know, in Acts 17, we learn that God appoints the places and the times in which you live. You're to leverage those relationships. Now, listen, what I mean is that we confront people graciously and with humility. We confront them. God has done this work in Jesus Christ we 're called to repent and believe this isn 't colonialism this isn 't imperialism, this is declaration of a truth that 's happened if you believe it now i 'm not saying we just come up and boldly start confronting people with the kingdom of God. I mean, what you do is Carol said yesterday we were kind of talking about it 's like it 's like paving a road into their life so that we we, we befriend them we are good neighbors to them. We serve them. We love them. We, we engage their lives where they are. And, and then we, we're looking for opportunities that can be gracious and humble to declare this truth to them. That, that this is our task. This is your task. It's my task. It's every single believer in here. It's our task. It's our privilege, really, to do what Jesus did, which is that the time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. Please repent. Let me persuade you to consider Christ. Mo- you know, evangelism is motivated out of generosity. It, it's not arrogance. There's a commercial years back about Mercedes-Benz and it showed the car, you know, one of those test Labs, you know, where they drive a car into a cement wall and they see how the occupants have just survived after that accident, and it shows, you know, the guys in white coats and the the, uh, the Mercedes representatives kind of watching the car, and the people are safe in the car, and and one of the guys in the lab coat says, you know, this new shock absorption, th- you know, they have some I don't know design on their cars that absorbs shock that was safer for the inhabitants, of the, for the occupants of the car. And so the guy asks the Mercedes guy, and says, why didn't you patent this? And he, he turns around and says, well, some things in life are just too good not to share. And of course, Mercedes is breaking their arm, patent themselves on the back for not patenting their, their shock-absorbing technology. But the point of it is that it really is too good not to share. If, if true, how can we not share that? I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to keep... That burning up in your breast, and never bringing it forth to anyone. But it's more than just evangelism. When he says make fishers of men, or when Jesus calls us to help others follow him, I think he's talking about helping one another to help to to, for us to help each other follow him. I, I think there's this life on life that we've been talking about. You know, where where you are to help another. Like if you see someone going off rail. You know, you call them and say, I haven't seen you. How are you doing? What's going on? That you're appealing to them. You're not in a care group. You're, you're not engaging in the means of grace that God has given to us. Uh, that you would be encouraging one another to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Th- this is a care that we have to exercise for one another. We need help in following Jesus. And the people that God has ordained to help me walk in Jesus is you. And and you can say that across this room, you know. I mean, the elders and the staff, we all are trying to model this. In the last year, we've been trying to disciple different men. Just life on life, just sitting down. And I have two men that I have appreciated sitting down with. We're just running through the book of James. Nothing really fancy. It takes about an hour. We read the we read a section of James and we talk about what does it mean and. And, and what is it, how does it apply to our lives? And, okay, it's saying this. Are you doing that? Am I doing this? Do we need to repent? How are you doing with your marriage? How can I pray for you? And it's just, we're just, these men in my, we're just helping each other be thankful for that day when we stand before God. Yeah, I'm not coming in trained. I'm coming in as prepared as they are. It's just, we're just reading the scriptures. Okay, it says this, what do we do? This is something we'd like you to do with other people in an organic way. You, just, you have a burden for others to know God better. You know, Richard Sibbs was, Sibb was another English Puritan. You can pronounce his name better than I could. But he said this. He said, We must one day give an account to God, not only for what sermons we've heard. Boy, now that's <whistles> shot across the bow. We must one day. Let me repeat it. I like that one so much. We must one day give an account, of course, I should read, we must one day give an account not only for the sermons we've preached, uh, not only for the sermons we've heard, but for the examples amongst whom we've lived. In other words, we are responsible to God for the way that we seek the development of Christ in one another. I mean, there's a responsibility that we bear. So, So, Jesus calls us to help others follow him. Who are you helping? Who is helping you? We don't want to structure a program and have a sign-up sheet. We want it to get kind of from from the grassroots up. Okay, last one is that Jesus calls us to persist and persevere. And this is an encouragement because I think some of us right now are feeling guilty. Notice that he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Hey, these apostles didn't just follow Jesus and they start fishing right away. It took them a few years to listen and to learn and to, to follow the ways of Jesus over and over. You see them going along the way, learning about Jesus, learning the gospel, learning what he does. It's not really until acts that we begin to truly see them become fishers of men. The same way with us. It's a, it's a process. It's progressive. It doesn't happen in a day. But I want to encourage you, he says, I will make them. This is a promise. This is a promise of God. I I love another old Puritan said that, that Christ's performances always outstrip his promises. His performances always outstrip his promises. If he promises to make you a fisher of men, a fisher of women, he will do that. And even more than you think. I want there to be a confidence in you. You're probably intimidated thinking, haven't done it. Don't think I can do it. Don't, don't go off on me encouraging you. Look at Jesus' words and he says, I will make you. That's the hope that we have. So what we have here is we have a message and we have a mission. We have a message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Have you repented and believed? Have you done that? Do you see the fruits of repentance in your life? Do you see the growing hatred of sin? Do you see quicker confession? Do you see more quick reconciliation? Do you see the fruit of repentance and faith? Is there a joy over the rescuing of Jesus Christ? That's the message. Okay, the mission is becoming disciples and making disciples. So Jesus has called you to himself. Do you have a love for him? Is it growing? Uh, Jesus Jesus has called us to follow him. Have we followed him? What have you left for his glory? Remember now, walking by faith isn't deprivation it it's really just leaving those things that are inhibiting us from enjoying him more and, and and jesus calls us to help others follow him are you helping others follow him if you need help then talk to an elder talk to the staff come forward we'd love to help point you in some directions if that's what you need and then last jesus calls us to persist to pursue to persevere let's not just hear this today and say oh that was that was pretty good but you know I, No, no, no. persist in this. It's not going to happen in a day.